My name is Erica Hampton. And my name is Mike Ames. You are listening to audio recording 008 from the Bureau of Creative Works. A short film experiment, premiering an audience-funded original short film by a new independent filmmaker each month. First things first, before we forget, we've partnered with the Brooklyn Filmmakers Collective and Black Magic Design, and we're hosting a screening event at Union Docks in New York City on Thursday, October the 20th at 7 p.m. So if you're in New York, go to our Facebook page, RSVP, and we'll see you there. We're going to watch a handful of great shorts from our Bureau of Filmmakers and also from Brooklyn Filmmakers Collective. So hopefully we'll see you there. So Oakley's recording this podcast in Flagstaff. Alex is talking with her from a small cafe in Brooklyn. They're discussing what is the first documentary released on the Bureau, Victor Bikini, which is a very personal look at the at the effects of the newly lifted trade embargo between the U.S. and Cuba. I'm Oakley Anderson Moore. I'm a filmmaker with the Bureau of Creative Works, and I am sitting down to talk today with another very talented filmmaker for the Bureau, Alex Malas. Thanks for being with us today, Alex. Hello, world. I'm pretty excited to talk to you. You have the third film that's been released for the Bureau, mm-hmm. and it's the first documentary, which is very mm. exciting. That is exciting, yeah. The film's called Victor Bikini. Right. And it follows a man named Victor who has sort of a startup entrepreneurial bathing suit business. He's based in Havana and he comes to Miami. And I want to talk to you about him a lot in just a minute because there's a lot of interesting things to talk about. But the first thing I have to ask you, um, I think a lot of people are probably just very curious since, you know, relations only basically just opened up between the U.S. and Cuba. This film is shot partly in Miami and some in Havana. What is it like shooting in Havana compared to Miami? Yeah, that's a great question. Shooting in Cuba has, as you mentioned, has opened up. It's now fully legal for Americans who are doing media activities, music videos, documentaries, fiction projects, can go and legally be in Cuba to do these activities. So a lot of people always ask, well, what about the embargo and what about the laws? It's totally legal. So that was no sweat. Shooting in Cuba is like, it's amazing. I mean, everywhere you point the camera is beautiful. Everything is intriguing. Everything is interesting and you know, when you go to a place for the first time, not that that was my first time, but when you go to a place as as an outsider, all of the things that you might take for granted when you live there suddenly become exciting and fresh. And it's a, I think it's an advantage as a cinematographer, which I was also doing when I was there, I was shooting uh, as well, just, just to sort of be able to find those compositions and find the framing and find the interesting colors and subjects and shapes and people. It becomes... I think it's a little easier when it's your first time in a place or or when you're still fresh in a place versus something with Miami where I've been a lot. I've been there dozens and dozens of times. My grandparents live there and uh, it's also the United States. So there's a lot of familiar architecture, familiar sights and sounds and smells. And so I think that changes your your perspective as a as a filmmaker and especially as a cinematographer when you're in a place so there's a huge difference i mean when you're in cuba it's like the old cars and the sort of older gentlemen smoking a cuban cigar on the on the sidewalk and the the pedicabs and the dilapidated buildings and the and the communist propaganda everywhere it's 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 so <laughs> exciting to to be shooting there tell me a little bit about victor i mean in the film you get to meet him he's coming to Miami to basically get some materials for his uh, fledgling bathing suit business. And he's part of this new group of people. 
He's called a cuenta propista. Right, exactly. So he was a state-employed engineer, and now he's got this bathing suit business. Right. I mean, how did you meet him? Well, as you mentioned, there is a, a an increase in in private ownership in Cuba and things like it's it's still it is limited to be clear. It's it's only about 200 different types of businesses from things like barbershop to uh, graphic design. Up until about 2007, it was like 99% state run. And that means everything. I mean, anything you can think of from transportation, housing, food, any service industry you could think of was overseen by this huge state bureaucracy. And that limited traditional things like competition, which some would say limited incentive to improve and innovate. That's the the classic criticism of a system like that. And now with these recent changes, people like Victor are able to operate in one of these 200 different categories and they and they find their niche and they're able to essentially operate like a business would here. There are a lot of organizations on the US side that are pushing for these reforms and trying to support them in any way they can. And this one particular group, the which is called the Cuba Study Group, sponsors a trip for Cuban entrepreneurs to come to Miami, basically go through a week crash course and they meet with Cuban Americans who live in Miami who run similar businesses, bakeries, small manufacturing, design, things like that. And they, they, they go to uh, conferences and they actually go to these walkthroughs. And, uh, and, I, and I saw that. I saw that they were doing that. I think I just saw it online and I reached out to them and said, hey, I'm a filmmaker. This sounds interesting. Can I tag along? And they said, sure. So I went down to Miami where my mother lives and filmed with them for a week. And Victor was, you know, a fascinating individual. And, uh, and I shot with him. So kept in contact and then uh, was able to go to Cuba and, and follow up on the project over there in Havana. What exactly was your strategy? Did you just shoot him the whole time? Or tell us yeah, about that, because I'm, I'm pretty curious. That's a great question. I think shooting with Victor and really shooting with any documentary subject, it's all about 100% transparency. So I told him from the very beginning, as much as I as much as I could, who I was, what I was interested in, what my goals were. I'm interested in in your story as a vehicle to understand the larger changes that are coming. You know, there's also the political implications and the social implications. And I think that you and your and your associates, uh, what you're going through on an individual level is very representative. And so I'm interested in in following you all, observing, asking questions, hearing from you. Uh, basically just hanging out for as, as long as I can to, to, to tell your story. And he knew exactly what I meant. And I think he saw the potential for mutual benefit. He, he knew that if he participated and cooperated with me and we worked together, that not only would I get a good story, but he would get a good story. And it would in many ways help him in his business. And plus, it was super fun. It was fun to make friends, and, and we had laughs together, and we got to learn a lot about each other, and he learned a lot about the filmmaking process, and of course, I learned a lot about the bikini-making process, and, uh, <laughs> and we, we, had the, we created this short film. It's fairly easy to find, to find writing and content about the larger issue. That, that's generally the way in which the New York Times, the Miami Herald, any press outfit would approach a subject like this. They talk about the macro implications, the, the, all the different players, you know, the Obama administration, the Castro administration, the way that they're talking, some of the history. Sometimes the things that slip, slip through the cracks and affect your ability to really understand these stories on a personal level are these uh, individual players. Sometimes just seeing the place and hearing the sounds and hearing their voices and what they have to say and 
getting this window into their life can be so much, I don't want to say more relevant. I, I want to, sometimes seeing these stories can be um, just as illuminating as reading these stories on a macro level, and, it, and, and they work hand in hand. So you, you read about these policies and these, and these so-called changes that are coming, and you may say, okay, that's all well and good, but what does that look like on the ground? And the art, you know, an, a particular article in New York Times may not describe the facade of a building or the sound of a car driving down the street or um, the intricacies of a particular transaction or somebody's day-to-day -day life. And in my opinion, those details are essential for truly understanding uh, the way a story is playing out. What is your connection to Cuba? Because this is maybe your second, third film. Third, I mean, yeah. you, and you're very abreast of the issues and the changes. You know, mm -hmm. What is your connection to the country? So my mother was born in Cuba, and she left in 1960, immediately after what is called the triumph of the revolution, moved to with her whole family and all her relatives out of the country and into the United States. And so despite the fact that I was raised in New Hampshire in a very... Uh, you know, New England white Protestant kind of situation, I always had this connection to Cuba uh, through my mother. And it was something that I was always curious about. And uh, especially when I moved to New York City, became more curious about and more interested in pursuing and understanding. And so with the blessing of my mother, I traveled to the country, which is, I should say, important for Cuban Americans because there's often this major tension in uh, Cuban-American families who left as a result of the revolution uh, this feeling of betrayal that if you go back uh, to visit your tourist dollars are supporting the regime. My mother and, uh, and definitely myself have a little bit more of a liberal attitude in terms of what a personal relationship with the country can feel like and, and understanding that a lot of these tensions are, are on a government level and not on a person-to-person -person level. I have no beef with the Cuban people. Um, and I wanted to meet them and I wanted to see them. So I went originally and I, uh, with a girlfriend at the time and, and ended up making a fiction short film from that experience. And then I went back again to screen the film at a festival. And while we were there screening the film, we shot another documentary. And then while, <laughs> then when we, when we went back to screen that film, we shot this third documentary, which, um, which is Victor Bikini. So I, I've gone about five, I think I've gone five times in total now. When you came through customs, when you got off the plane, did you have to yeah. declare yourself or releases yeah. there? I mean, what's different? Yeah, in, in the United States, the laws are you can basically do whatever you want. You can go anywhere that's public, and if you have permission from the owner, you can go anywhere that's private to shoot, and there's no need to, to get an overarching license to even engage in documentary at all. In Cuba, it's a little bit more foggy. Um, the laws around traveling to Cuba are on the United States side. The embargo, the media ex exceptions and exemptions, those are all US law, it has nothing to do with Cuba. In Cuba, if you want to do a narrative production, for example, which I did do, you need product, you need permission just to, just to do it. You can't just go set up in the street because everything is overseen by the state and you need, you need to express written permission and, and often that means paying fees, etc. With documentary and press activities, it's a little bit more of a gray zone. I think if you asked a Cuban bureaucrat, they would say, of course you need permission, but if you asked any documentary filmmaker, they would say, no, just do it. I think the reality is if you 
are doing the types of thing where I'm doing, which are relatively benign politically, more of a personal interest story, you're not going to have a problem. In this documentary and in another one I did about a, a tattoo artist, we did walk by the police a couple times and they didn't, they didn't give a shit. But if you're going to, let's say, a rally of dissidents in Cuba who are protesting the state, which is, it's illegal even to protest. They don't, there's freedom of speech is not guaranteed. Uh, if you were there with a camera, then you would likely be detained and questioned and uh, your credentials examined. And it might be tricky if you came into the country on a tourist visa, uh, but you're there you know, working for a news outlet or an, or an independent filmmaker, that might be a nuance that's harder to explain and, and may get you into some trouble. So all that said, if, you're, if you want to go to Cuba to make a documentary, just be sure you understand what, how your subject matter might relate to the goals of the state, to put it simply. If, it's, uh, if you're doing, a, again, if you're doing a documentary about this prominent dissident and you intend to follow their underground network and their attempts to undermine the government, it's dangerous. It can, it's, I mean, it's a dictatorship. Like I said, there's freedom of the press, freedom of speech are not guaranteed, and those are not things to be taken lightly. Um, on the flip side, it's also not East Germany. It's 2016. I think most of the populace understands that these that the Cold War is over. These this secret police uh, mentality of of uh, always watching your back is 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 much much more subdued, and uh, people are more open to talk about the changes that are happening and coming, and uh, and also more more happy to talk to the media about it. Was there something about Victor that stood out that you mm. thought he would be more, you know, he, he would tell the story better, he'd be a better subject on film? Like, how do you know who the right person is for yeah. to tell your story? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, originally I had, I was with, I think, six or eight people, and they were all interesting, but there was something about Victor. I think it was a mixture of his charisma. He was just so excited. He was always laughing, and he would switch between uproarious laughter and and down to brass taxes details very quickly and I admired that and I also saw just visually that he was this he was an older gentleman he wasn't a young he wasn't a young archetype of an entrepreneur he was an older guy who used to was a teacher his whole life and now uh you know what's the very last thing you would imagine this guy doing designing bikinis and it's just <laughs> I think I think the day that we went out to the beach which was somewhere in the middle of the shoot the first scene in the film, when we went out to the beach and I saw the way that he interacting with this two women, I knew that he was going to be a great person to follow around. When you talk about how, you know, you can read stories from a macro level and they have a different effect, you know, I feel like you see Victor in Miami and, you know, he's in a really tall skyscraper type hotel. And then when you switch to Cuba right away, the colors of the walls are evident. Yeah, yeah. Was there a different strategy for each place? Yeah. How did you tell the story visually about each of those two places? Because it comes out comes through really well when you watch it. Thanks. Thank you very much. I think that my approach, I wish I could say I had some kind of artistic vision before I went, <laughs> that, that this is the style. I'm, you know, I'm going to reference these six <laughs> French New Wave films, and that's what I was doing. But the reality is that it's run and gun. It's, it's my style of shooting and, and how I approach coverage and um, characters and dialogue is really just sort of an amalgamation of my experience as a shooter. It's taking little bits and whatever feels good in the moment is what I do. I do have a nice 
advantage of also being an editor and having a lot of editing experience where when I'm in the moment, it's very... It's very technical. I'm very in my head. There's a lot of technical talk going on. Like hold that shot for 10 seconds. Make sure to get the reverse shot. Get the detail. Get the insert. You know, get the two shot. And I'm I'm sort of talking myself through that stuff, which is sometimes at odds with the directorial vision, where you're trying to really think about how the story is developing on one side of your brain, and that's fighting up against the other side of your brain, which is saying, you know, get the coverage, get the coverage, get the shots. It's a challenge, but those two things together are basically what you see on screen. That's what happens when you're trying to develop a story and and shoot. I think in a situation like that, my goal is just to get everything, to, to, to cover as much as possible. It's it's a largely observational film, but I'm also I was also involved a lot, you know, and I think I don't want to pretend like it's some like I was a real fly on the wall because I was there and they knew I was there and there were times where I wasn't necessarily manipulating anything but I was saying you know what do you guys think about this why don't you guys talk about this and then they would talk about it and it wasn't necessarily a hundred percent organic in the way that a, a particular topic would come up but I was uh, I guess you'd say I was directing in that way and, and trying to create space for these things that I know they talk about when I'm there with a camera so I can capture it sometimes they're not simultaneous sometimes they, they take turns so I'll sort of <laughs> literally put the camera down on my hip, take a breath and say, okay, so what do you guys think about, and I'll really take a moment to process and evaluate the situation and try and come up with a new set of questions or a new objective or a suggestion for a place we should go or whatever. And as soon as they get rolling, I, I might turn off that part of my brain, turn on the camera part of my brain and just shoot for you know the next 30 minutes and be really more focused on getting the camera right and less focused on what they're saying. And then, and then in the next moment, I might put the camera down and say, okay, great, so you know, next thing. So it's, it's almost like taking turns with myself, ter- taking turns <laughs> with the cameraman and taking it's like turns with the director. like I have a multiple personality disorder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could say that. I think in my ideal scenario, I'm just directing. So I can just focus on what's going on and I have a trusted camera person who can get the shots I need. On the other hand, I really like shooting, so I want to do that too. Uh, <laughs> so It's interesting because it's a choice that you kind of, there's pros and cons when mm-hmm. you shoot something yourself. Because you know what you want and you yeah. don't have to communicate to someone else. It's just an exchange that's happening immediately. Or, exactly. Well, In sometimes immediately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so is it just you? Did you have anyone doing audio? Or? In Miami, I had a sound person. She was a great nice. sound person I found through some friends, and she came and recorded sound. But then in in Havana, it was just a single lavalier recording in cam- into the camera and a, sh- and a shotgun mic on the other channel. So I did have to take, that was another yeah. thing, I had to take a moment and make sure, you know, I was, I was also monitoring audio in those cases and making sure there wasn't interference, making sure the mic didn't drop, checking levels Like what I'm supposed to be doing right now in this interview. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Filmmaking is could be described as making sure things don't go wrong. There's a hundred things, a thousand things that can go wrong every time, and usually 10 or 20 do. The difference, sometimes the difference between success and struggle can be identifying those things immediately, and delegation is often the best way to deal with that. But when you're doing it all yourself, it just leaves you a lot more susceptible to, to things going wrong. So, sure. And the irony of that, of course, is that usually the, it's the first-time filmmakers, the entry filmmakers, who are the ones who have to deal with all these infinite things, and it's the more experienced filmmakers who have the resources and the experience to delegate. 
how would you consider yourself on that spectrum? <laughs> uh, of experience? <laughs> uh, depends who you ask. I th- it depends the day. I don't know. I, I think I know what I'm doing. I've done, those, I've done those types of shoots a lot where it's just running gun camera, character in the streets, observation, interactive, uh, you know, verite situations where you got a lav and a boom and a single zoom lens. That's it seems like you've exercised that muscle a fair amount. Yeah. I mean, you know, when yeah. you watch Victor Bikini, there's no, you know, technically there seems to be nothing wrong, which is very Thank rare you. in any documentary, even <laughs> yeah, of well, a very there, professional there are scale. Some, so. You know, editing is a magical thing. There's a lot of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of bad shots, but I've learned through experience to make as few mistakes as I, as I can. What did you shoot on? Like what tools are you using? It's a pretty basic setup. It's a C100 shooting C-Log with a Canon 24 to 70 uh, L lens, Neumann, KMR81 shotgun and a Electrosonics lavalier wireless. That's it. And I just uh, and no rig. Oh no, I did have a rig in. Um, I did have a like a shoulder support in Miami, and then I just did straight up handheld in in Cuba, and then editing in Final Cut 10 and a pl- and a color correcting in the program as well. It's interesting in the film. Victor Bikini, he, at, at the end, he's talking about how his, you know, business, the success is sort of predicated on this fact that he's the only person in Cuba basically making these bathing suits. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. And he's, you know, he's talking about that. He says he doesn't look at that as in a capitalist way or so- socialist way. But he says something to the fact if you if you don't get it yourself, you're you're left with whatever the state provides. Yeah, that's true. I mean, true. I think how does that relate to like you know things we do in filmmaking, the arts, yeah, and for sure. I mean, I, I think going to Cuba, it's inevitable that you will start to compare and contrast the two countries and therefore the two economic systems. Despite these changes, it's still a very closed economy, and I think there's there's this desire among certain liberals or leftists in the United States to to idealize the socialist systems of Cuba, the classless society, the everybody has what they need. That doesn't work when you're talking to a Cuban who doesn't have, like I said, who doesn't have freedom of speech, who doesn't have uh, freedom of the press, who doesn't have that type of mobility, that type of self-determination that we largely take for granted here. One of the questions I asked a lot of these people was like, but aren't you worried that capitalism, this, these capitalistic enterprises are going to uh, ruin the social fabric of Cuba? And, and they're like, yeah, I guess, but but what's the alternative? We can't stay the way we are, and um, these kinds of changes are inevitable. It's nice to talk about a classless society, but when you don't have choice, a little bit of self-determination sure does sound sweet. It's almost like you're op- when, when you're having those discussions, it's like you're coming from two different fundamental places. We're coming from, I'm coming from New York City, which is like hyper-capitalist orgy, where <laughs> the richest people in the world and the very poorest people in the world live side by side. And it's glaring, and it's, and it's pr- super problematic, and it needs to be addressed. And so I take that mentality with me to Cuba, where I ask these questions, where it's he comes from a place, Victor Bikini comes from a place, where the class disparity is, is small. The richest and the poorest are relative to a place like New York, very close together. And things like material resources are scarce. And when there's an opportunity like this to uh, take control of your destiny, so to speak, of course he's going to take it. Of course he's going to think it's a great idea because he can now provide for his family and and help those around him. You know, there is, there is an awareness of 
so-called delicate fabric of Cuban society being damaged by American or Western, Western style markets and Western style capitalism. But I think everyone knows that. And there, especially, and of all people, the Castros know that, the, the government knows that, and they're not interested in opening up the floodgates. And I think if we did see that, where suddenly Cuba said overnight, okay, if foreigners can invest as much money as they want, they can buy all the capital, chain stores can come in, you know, this is completely over, then yes, it would be a disaster and it would turn into back to the way it was before. But what we're seeing now is this slow transition, which arguably is too slow, but it's step by step and people are hopefully having these discussions and, and are aware of these potential pitfalls and... Um, and acting accordingly. Somebody like Victor, I mean, he he is getting an advantage. He knows that he's, by having this bikini business, he's putting himself in a place that's, he's putting himself in an advantageous position for when these changes continue, he'll be ahead in the same way an entrepreneur is ahead of their neighbor. And I know you mentioned briefly that Cuba has a film industry. Right. Are there movie theaters in yeah. Havana? What do they show? And what's the film industry That's a great like? question. There's more movie theaters in Havana than there are in New York City. Um, there, <laughs> no kidding. It, um, it's true. I mean, uh, almost as many. There is a huge number relative to the size of the population and the the... The, the size of the economy, you might say. In 1959, when the revolution happened, one of the first things that was established was the was this Cinema Institute, which was tasked with nurturing a an ultra leftist propaganda machine, essentially. And so, films that had that fit the ideals of the revolution were funded, and resources were uh, were given to these films. And that even carried over all the way till now, where that culture of of filmmaking has survived. There are tons of theaters in Havana, and I think now because of some of the um, economic squeezing that has happened over the last, you know, since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91, where the, the, the state can really only afford to produce one or two films a year or something like that. So you'll, you'll have these huge, beautiful theaters and they'll be playing one movie. It's not the situation where you can go and catch American movies. They're not in the theaters. They usually play only, it's only Cuban-made films and uh, some South American films, Central American films, uh, global, global South films, I guess you might say. But they have a huge festival every year in December that attracts, it's like the Sundance of the South. And I know that actually the Sundance Film Festival did go last year to make inroads. And um, it's a huge festival with 500 films and they're, there's also now a, a thriving independent industry in Cuba, in, which in many ways parallels the DSLR revolution of the United States. The same kind of thing is happening there, where now people, through family members or their own means, are able to import Canon 5Ds and Zoom recorders, and, and they're making films in the same way that, that we do. That's taken off there as well. Where can we watch some films like this? Would look up that festival name or like, yeah, is that not yet reached us? Or how do we not, keep an eye out for this burgeoning independent? That's a great question. Um, it's not easily accessible. I think a couple of the more successful independent filmmakers are, are touring their films internationally. I know um, one filmmaker, Carlos Lechuga, had his film at TIFF and now it's in Vancouver coming up and Mexico and they're traveling around. But the there's not really any significant American distribution, a theatrical distribution of 
Cuban films, it's, uh, it's not happening. And the internet there really sucks, so there's not really a YouTube-type outlet to see them. But I don't know. I think just... Um, I don't have a good answer for that. I think because there's not one. saying that we'll just have to like keep your eyes peeled yeah, keep and your see eyes what kind of happens. You know, you kind of mentioned how it was creatively freeing or just exciting to go to to be able to film in Havana, a place you hadn't really, yeah. you know, a place you hadn't filmed a thousand times, and people, at least here, hadn't seen a lot before. What would be your advice about experimenting and how that was freeing for you? And should they do the same? And what should they do? And I think one of the biggest. This is probably pretty common advice, but one of the biggest pitfalls in documentary filmmaking is is waiting waiting till you think you're quote-unquote ready waiting till all your ducks are in a row your subjects have agreed your locations are released your outline is prepared you've got a grant you know you you've you bought new shoes and your underwear is clean like if you wait for all those things to happen <laughs> you're not going to start whereas i think treat everything treat every project as exploratory and if you lower the stakes enough to get your ass out the door anything is possible. I think with this particular project, it was like, okay, I got approval to go to this thing. That was enough to go down to Miami and just figure it out when I got there. There are projects where planning and research and conceptualization, I think all projects benefit from those things, but it could also be said that all projects benefit from from starting, from going, from picking up (laughs) the camera and filming. You got to start somewhere and you can always shoot more. What would you say is sort of the value of having the ability to make this short film like uh, Victor Bikini? Projects like this, I mean, I, I do say that like just pick up your camera and shoot, but there also is the reality of, um, of paying for it, for paying for a ticket to Miami, of uh, buying some food and, and paying a sound person, and, and that can be really hard to make happen. You got to, you know, do you know, a side job or you figure out, you know, a full-time job in most cases, and it's, it's creative thinking in things like the Bureau that that really inspire me to, to keep going. It's it's such a unique way to, a unique and exciting way and an important way to think about how short films are created and distributed. And it's such, it's such a pleasure to be a part of something like this. And I think removing that financial burden, however small, is hugely liberating and, um, and really helped me get to the finish line. Well, stay tuned for our next podcast where Oakley sits down with Leah Meyerhoff and talks about her newly released bureau short, Not So Soft. It's incredibly powerful and incredibly relevant. So we hope you'll tune in for that next time. And if you haven't already, you can watch Not So Soft on the Bureau, and you really should do that. It's pretty pretty powerful. <laughs> We're really proud to be a part of it. Also premiering very soon on the Bureau is the next short film, which is a collaboration between Eyes Warch and Martin Wazuski. Uh, that team makes up The Wild Machine, based out of Toronto. Their work is always really impressive. They're they're incredibly good at working within low budgets, and they're a great team of filmmakers. All right, that's all for this podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be good to each other. <laughs> <laughs>